Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis, Tennessee. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in a world in need of repair. My guest tonight is Padraig Otuma. Padraig is a poet and theologian with a keen interest in language and power and conflict and religion. He's theologian in residence for the On Being Project, and in his Poetry Unbound podcast presented with On Being, he unfolds a single poem in each episode, as no one but Padraig can. I can't commend it highly enough, especially if you're someone who can't imagine what a poem could possibly have to do with a life like yours. Padraig will show you, I promise. Padraig's also written books of poems and prayers and prose from 2014 to 2019. He was leader of Cory Mila, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation community. He's also the host of a new podcast from Cory Mila as well. You're a busy man. <laughs> Welcome, Scott. Welcome. So good to have you here. I'm at least so to be with you uh, over this medium. It'd be great if you were here in person, but maybe yeah. another day. Maybe another day. I look forward to that. So tonight I want to talk about borders. I want to talk about belonging and your new book by that name. I'd love, though, maybe if we'd uh, step into this conversation with a poem. Have you one? I do. Here's a new one called um, British-Irish Relations. It keeps changing the title. Uh, I started to write this a few years ago regarding um, Brexit. And um, initially it was British-Irish Relations 2016. And then it became 2016 to 2017. Currently, it's 2016 to 2021. <laughs> All summer long, I've wondered what to say, not because I don't know what to say, but because I don't want to say it. I don't want to say it because all summer long, I've wondered whether saying it is what I want to say. Saying something during uncertain times is a certain art of failure. And certain failures make saying anything an uncertain art. And the trouble with history is that history is troubled by the past. And the past is history, or at least in some parts. In other parts, its troubled presence is an ever-living present. And this troubles us when we try to tell our history to the present. That's the troubled present, almost always rooted in the past. And if you ask me where the border is, the border is all around me. I drove through it yesterday, or rather, it through me. It weaves its way across the laneway near my house. Near my house, the border weaves its way round me. This one blade of grass is Irish, this one British. I drove through it. It drove through me, this blade of history. Oh, I've never heard the poem. Do you live this close to um, the imposed? Yeah, yeah, the border is uh, about two fields that way. Oh my, oh my, so this is real. Mm. And and you begin it by uh, struggling over what to say. Um, language itself <laughs> is fraught in, in life and politics and... Yeah. And what is language in the sense of public language to do with the question of history? Um, where do you start? You know, um, I read a book shortly after I moved to Belfast and the book said something like, the, f the first sentence of the book was something like, everything was fine in Northern Ireland until 1968 when the Catholics turned into terrorists. I was like, my God, what a what a reading of history. So the question as to where do you begin when it comes to British-Irish history is a really complicated one because depending as to where you start, you end up with a different reading as to who should be held accountable for what. Mm. I mean, my personal view is that blame and atrocity knows no partisanship. That You find um, blame and atrocity on the British side through the whole imperial project that brought British presence and language and religion to Ireland in the first place. And then, especially in the latter part of the 20th century, you see an Irish response to that, um, which was full of terror and murder. Um, and therefore, there's blood 
on both sides, which isn't to say that, oh, therefore it's all equal and, you know, the accountabilities are equally held on different levels. I think there needs to be a high standard of appropriate and different accountability brought against people who are in different positions of power. And so often, it seems to me, in the last few years of British Irish history, very few people in Britain know about Britain's involvement in Ireland. Um, nobody can pass. You do these exams when, when, when you're 15 and when you're 18 in school in Ireland. And you have to do history up until the one you do when you're 15. Um, that's when I dropped history. I didn't do history after that. But, you know, at that stage, you've studied years of English history, you know, the Tudors and the the queens and the kings and the whole lot, um, as well as then British involvement in Ireland. Whereas the commensurate exams or the comparable exams in England, I don't think there's one single page of Irish history. And I don't even know that there's much of imperial history in it. Um, mm. And that's complicated then because when Britain's involved in the Brexit project and Irish people are going, oh my God, what are you doing to us again? Lots of British people are like, what do you mean again? <laughs> <laughs> were we there <laughs> yeah, yeah and that's a really that so that's where i don't know where to start because you're like my god I, i'm not a historian i mean i read history but i'm i'm not a historian and you just think how in the middle of being slap bang in the middle of what for ireland was desperate the the brexit vote how do you begin to go well let's start in 1801 <laughs> you know People are going yeah. to say, my God, you hold long resentments. And you're like, well, you're lucky we didn't start 500 years before that. <laughs> I thought I was letting people off the hook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it, so it's twofold in a way. I mean, it's easy for us in America to, to, it's a pretty safe statement to say that public language has just been deeply corrupted and that we don't have the, we, the language has been, we can't even use the language and we can't even have a shared sense of what the facts are. So there's yeah. history. Do we actually know what the moving pieces in our story are? Yeah. And then there's the fact, the, the question of language. Do we even know how to, you know, use language in a way that's not weaponized? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the British ministers during the whole Brexit negotiations, one of the British ministers um, was speaking about how, you know, Britain has been used as a land bridge, as it's called, for lots of goods traveling from mainland Europe to Ireland. And a kind of a, a throwaway threat was that Britain might stop some of that happening and impose um, taxes or tariffs or checks something on goods that were traveling through Britain with no intention of stopping there. Um, and what she said was, um, we'll starve Ireland. Now, when you think of the fact that we did not have a potato famine, we had a famine. There was plenty of food in Ireland to feed the population of Ireland. A request at the beginning of the potato blight had gone across to Westminster asking for the ports to be closed. And those were not closed. And a, a letter came back. It's in writing saying if there are fewer Irish people at the end of this for us to deal with, so much the better. And when you consider that the population of Ireland in 1845 at the start of the famine was maybe nine and a half million. And by 1880, the population was four million. Mm. And then you have a government minister saying, we'll starve Ireland. My God, like there is a, a cruel artistic <laughs> demon raising his head in the unconscious there. Uh, and, you know, uh, my guess is that the minister just was saying, I'm just using a figure of speech. But of all the figures of speech that could be used from a person with an English accent, um, she chose to use that one. And that I think is a is a is a kind of a thing where people in Ireland are like, my God, where do you start? Yeah. You know, where do you begin when you're in the middle of a crisis to say what we need is the calm to do a deep look of history because a deep look at history is going to make everybody uncomfortable. And I think it's fair enough to say, and I think it's ethical to say, it's especially going to make empires feel uncomfortable provided that you know if they're taking an actual look at history through the lenses of the places that had been under their empire that should make empire uncomfortable not individual people in england they're good people of course they are but in terms of the the histories of how our countries have overlapped there's a lot of shame 
So interesting. It, it brings me home to, uh, to Calvary here where we have um, on the northeast corner of our block, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, lived on our block. There was a benign sign that named him as a historical marker that named him as a businessman. And we discovered he had a slave market active on the block of the church and the church was here. Wow. Um, so it's bringing me back into it. So we actually had to go through a process of what kind of, we had a liturgy for it on the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination in Memphis here at the church and said prayers of confession. And the richness and difficulty of the project was, um, was trying to find language that, that said we are, um, we can't disentangle ourselves from ourselves from our forebears. That would be the lop them off and say, well, there were bad Christians here back in the middle of the 1900s and we're good Christians. Um, finding prayers of confession and, um, and truth telling and it's hard work. It is. And yet this is the work y'all have enacted. It is. Finding language about the past is very important. Finding ways to speak about what was morally abhorrent in the past, but not in such a way that you imply. And of course, today, nothing like that's going on. My God, aren't we all just lovely? Because, uh, of course, uh, 50 years time will look at us now today and hold us to a level of account that we are now not holding ourselves accountable to. And the question is, is how even in not knowing that for some people and others of us do know it, how do we begin to act with a, a future view when it comes to the question of ethics and the uncomfortable question about um, telling the truth? <laughs> and that is where I think the, you know, the language about truth and fake news all, all across the world over the last number of years, which is just the latest version of an old thing. And that is where it is. Um, it is a particular kind of crisis um, because accountabilities are being called for left, right and centre. Me too. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, LGBT inclusion. All of these movements are really calling for um, confession to be done in public um, with a level of accountability and a level of truth telling and a level of saying, this is shameful and I'll tell it anyway. <laughs> yeah. And that, that requires a certain kind of plain and elegant language to do that without dressing it up. And that, I think, is a difficult thing to do. It is difficult. It was necessary for all of these movements to crystallize, reduce language just to a poignant hashtag even, right? To where we, yeah. we can mark it and then trying to live in the ambiguity of what it means, um, mm. what it actually calls us to. So, so what's this new book, um, this is a lovely way to bring our ways into this new book uh, where you didn't go back even 500 years. You went back, what, 1500 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> um, story of Ruth and you and your friend, Glenn Jordan, yeah. um, whom you lost last mm. uh, summer suddenly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, 2,500 years, Scott. That's oh, sorry, 1,500 isn't even back to Jesus. Sorry, 2,500 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I'd love, as we move toward this book, I'd love first for you to maybe uh, introduce us to Glenn. Um, mm. I've met him on every other chapter in this book, and I'm, I'm a great, great fan. It's <laughs> lovely. Yes, uh, Glenn died last year, the day we handed in the kind of fairly serious, pretty much final draft of the book. Um, it was a Thursday. And uh, yeah, his daughter phoned me that morning to say that he died very suddenly. He was just 55. It wasn't over. It was an un another unexpected thing. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd met him when I was 11. So 34 years ago. Mm. Uh, he had been a dorm leader in a camp that I was at. And he was lovely. He was a very kind man. I mean, he, I thought he was a proper adult. He was only 21 or 22 at that stage, you know. But uh, he had a lovely way about him, a lovely kindness um, about him that suggested itself even then. And um, I remembered his name throughout all my childhood. I would say his name to myself from time to time as a as kind of a recollection of kindness. Genuinely, during difficult times, I would call to mind Glenn Jordan. And then I moved to Belfast when I was 27 and somebody mentioned Glenn Jordan, who was involved in community work over in the east side of the city. 
And I said, where's he from? Because it's not much of a popular name, Glenn Jordan, two ends. And um, for Glenn. And uh, they said, oh, you know, he's from Bray. I was like, my God, this has to be the same fellow. So I contacted him and went across to meet him. And I'd written him a poem and I brought that thinking he might laugh me out of his office thinking, go away with your poem. I barely remember who you are. Anyway, he remembered and um, yeah, we started a close friendship from then. That's almost 20 years ago now that I moved to Belfast. And um, the last five years or so, he was working with Corrie Miller, um, working particularly in the public theology department that I started when I was leader. And so we were working very closely on road trips together, writing trips together. We took a few days away together to plan this book. And we decided that we'd plan and walk, which was lovely. We took long, long walks and some Donegal beaches and planned the book out and thought through how we'd do it and the structure and the tone that we wanted and all of that. Um, a few weeks ago, his daughter sent me a photograph of um, that poem that I'd given him. She found it in his th in his things. Oh. Oh, it and framed lovely. it. How lovely. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. He was loved by so many people. He was a, a big-hearted man, phenomenally st um, studied. He had five degrees, two in economics and three in theology. Um, but you never, you know, he was fi filled with insight. He loved talking about theology, he loved talking about politics. His favorite subject of everything is Bruce Springsteen. And um, actually, no, his favorite subject was his family. And then Bruce Springsteen. And then everything else came after that. And um, yeah, he was hugely loved by so many people. Well, the project is is remarkable because um, you really do jump over 25 centuries and say, I think this old story from another time has something to do with Brexit. Like specifically, it's quite these. You, know, yeah. you, had, you, you had Ruth and Brexit groups. They were called that. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't a great title. I think we did think of calling it the Borders and Belonging Project, you know, the name of yeah. the book. But we just kept on calling it the Ruth and Brexit Project and it kind of stuck. So, Yeah. I mean, when it comes to the question about exploring the impact of Brexit, which was the United Kingdom leaving the European Union, when it comes to the question of exploring that in terms of its impact in Ireland, that does require that people understand that the the question as to what the northeastern part of Ireland is called and where it rightfully should be belonging to politically that brings that into sharp focus. Um, and ultimately, the Good Friday Agreement honoured the fact that there are people in Northern Ireland for whom belonging to the United Kingdom is their primary national allegiance. It also honoured that there are people in the north of Ireland for whom uh, a dream for a reunification of Ireland is their national yearning. Everybody can have either or both passports in the north. And the Good Friday Agreement established this thing in law called parity of esteem, which is to say that in in politics, that whatever your national belonging and whatever your national yearning for belonging is, that that will be honoured in law, in perpetuity. And it gave the permission for a thing called a border poll to happen, which would be ultimately a referendum on the question of um, whether Ireland should be reunited or not, or whether the border should be disestablished. Um, and the Good Friday Agreement established that. One of the other things that the Good Friday Agreement did was to make the border entirely porous. There's no there's no police checks, there's no nothing checks. You drive across it. There's a thing that changes the speed limit from miles to kilometres, you know, if you're going from the north to the Republic. Um, that's kind of it, really. There might be a sign, you know, welcome to this new county. And, um, and then also the Good Friday Agreement honoured the fact that the governments of London and Dublin each renounced territorial claim to this jurisdiction called the North of Ireland or Northern Ireland and said that the future of the question of politics and the border on the island of Ireland belongs to the people of Ireland in a vote. And that vote will be called a border poll. And so Brexit really, by bringing increased attention to to the question of the border, suddenly you've got European Union law on one side and not on the other. Was there going to be the re-establishment of a border, a British border on Ireland? Or is that going to be in the Irish Sea? What about goods that are travelling from Scotland to Northern Ireland? You know, 
do they have to go through European Union checkpoints? Because currently the north of Ireland is kind of half in, half out of the European Union. Um, because of all the commitments that the United Kingdom has committed to under internationally binding treaty law of the Good Friday Agreement, none of that had been thought through because I think the British establishment had no imagination that Brexit would happen. They mm. thought, well, you're a skeptic, but not that you're a skeptic. Anyway, I think through a series of manipulations, the lots of people voted for something that they hadn't read through. Britain doesn't have a written constitution. And so, therefore, when you have a referendum in Britain, there's no laws about what part of the constitution is going to be amended because the constitution isn't written. It's different in Ireland. If there's a constitution in Ireland, you have to do all the work in advance because you're proposing a specific change to the constitution, to the written constitution. And so the question of referendum is really not a mechanism that Britain is set up to have. Britain has an amazing parliamentary system, absolutely extraordinary. They should have used that because they have the system to deal subtly with that. And so within the context of trying to pay attention to what had happened in Brexit, I was aware that we um, needed to find a way to tell the story of peoples parted by borders, borders that are contested, old hostilities held against, and the question of how do we look towards each other and what framework of civic imagining is adequate to help us look towards each other in a way that isn't just based on a trade law. <laughs> um, and there was no story of Ireland or Britain that we could have used without people going, oh, that one's biased or that one's biased. You know, nobody's going to agree. So I went to the Dublin government who were funding Corrymeela and said we wanted to do this project with faith communities north and south of the border. Um, and I wanted to use the Book of Ruth as the template for that because the Book of Ruth is about a widowed, displaced border crosser who's the, mar the, the validity of whose marriage is in question, um, the accessibility to social welfare of whom is in question also, and the civic rights of whom is in question. And they said, tell me the story. So in about five minutes, I outlined, I outlined the story. Wasn't expecting to have to outline a story like that in a fairly fancy meeting with our funders from the Fund for Reconciliation from the Dublin government. And then they gave us more money than we asked for, which paid for Glenn's salary and for costs. So our, our target was to meet with 3,000 people over a few years, and we met with 5,000 people. Um, we Glenn had put together resources looking at different aspects of the Book of Ruth, two sides of a border, uh, hostilities that go back a long time, stereotypes of each other. Um, and uh, the Book of Ruth really did present an extraordinarily populated drama within which then we could use that as a critical conversation for British-Irish relations. Astonishing. You got public funding for a study of the Book of Ruth. That's yeah. <laughs> More than you asked for. Well, let's let's enter that story because mm -hmm. I'm. It's, uh, I hope people are curious. We're talking about deeply complex modern problems of globalization that we have resources that, uh, from this ancient ancient text, this ancient story that's been handed down mm -hmm. to us. Um, yeah. uh, well, let's maybe we enter with talking. With, who's Ruth? What's a moment? Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's fraught from the beginning. Yes, you need a little. It is. Even we'll yeah. need a little. I mean, yeah, the book of Ruth is four chapters, four acts, really, very elegantly written, brilliantly written, great drama, brilliant characters, all kinds of intrigue. Um, God isn't an annoying character in it. There's no miracles. Nobody rises from the dead. No voice comes down from on high, which is a great relief because we wanted a. We were running a faith-based project, but we wanted it to be to appeal to people who come from a kind of a, a religious culture, but don't have a personal devotion. People with doubt, people interested in religion as literature, but not really as a prayer endeavor. And so, so um, the Book of Ruth was really suitable for that also. Um, the first act of the Book of Ruth sets it up that there's a family in Bethlehem in Israel um, of, uh, of a husband and wife, Naomi and Elimelech. And there are two sons. There's famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And they leave and go to Moab. And that in itself is a scandalous thing because Moab was a neighbouring territory, but there was great enmity that had gone back generations. They each blamed each other for all kinds of things, that stereotypes about each other. And marriages between Israelites and Moabites were banned and there's all these questions as to whether it was an Israelite woman and a Moabite man or the other way around as to which one of those might have been quasi-permissible or not. 
Anyway, that family go to Moabite territory. Very soon after that, the husband dies. So Naomi's left with her two sons. They marry local Moabite women. And 10 years after that, they've been settled there for 10 years. A famine comes through, kills those two sons. So suddenly Naomi from Bethlehem is left in Moab with her two local Moabite daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law. And she can't fulfill the obligation. None of them have children. She can't fulfill the obligation she has, the legal obligation, business obligation she has to them of providing for them an inheritance, which would be understood to be children. And so she releases them to go home to their mother, which is not a release of disgrace. It is a release to say that the fault was on the family of Naomi not to have been able to fulfill their legal obligation. Orpah does. And Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. And Ruth travels back with Naomi to Bethlehem. The thing about it is, is that Beth- Naomi wasn't expecting a great reception back in Bethlehem and she didn't get one either because it seems like they had money and left with it rather than during a famine staying around and investing their money locally. Yeah. So there was the sense of go, check it out, here she is. You know, she, when, when they had plenty of money and we were in hard times, they upped and left. Now hard times have fallen on her and here she is coming back. What's she, what's she back for? Begging, you know? And there's this kind of Greek chorus who give comment throughout the book at various times. And uh, so Naomi's a wreck of herself. The Midrash calls her a husk of a husk. And um, Ruth really is left to fend for herself in a community where the question as to the validity of her widowhood is really up according to people's opinion. An opinion wouldn't have been on her side. And the, uh, the validity of her widowhood and the validity of her marriage in the first place would be the thing upon which her accessibility to social welfare, i.e. harvesting the corners of the field, would be based. Yeah, this goes back into the law, right? That it's, yeah. it's in in the Torah that if you have a field, this, which is interesting, which I think is something that's a corrective to us to, to remember we need to embed things, yeah. structures of society that provide for these people. Even though you've you've named, though, it was it was dicey whether she would actually exist in the category that the field had been set aside, that the portion had been set aside for. Totally. I mean, no sooner do you create a rule where you say, well, okay, the corners of your field need to be left for the gleaning, for the widows. Um, Then you go, well, what if my field has five corners? You know, presumably few fields are just perfectly rectangular. What, you know, what if it's a, you know, is it four of those five? Is it all of them? How far out from the field? The whole corner, just a bit of it? Around. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's right. Circular fields for everybody. (laughs) And so um, there's all these questions, which I understand, you know, people have their own livelihoods to look after. But I do find it very interesting that the law, the Torah, is understood in that situation um, rightfully as a provision of generosity and social welfare and justice and citizenship. I think... um, People from the Christian religions do a terrible disservice to Torah to only read it through the lens of what's said about it as the translation of law in the Christian Gospels. Amy Jill Levine has written a whole variety of correctives, really. She's a Jewish scholar of the Christian scriptures, and she's written a whole variety of correctives for people to make sure that we're not bearing false witness against um, the Jewish religion by thinking that the Christian scriptures are necessarily off authoritative when it comes to what it says about law, especially, as well as all kinds of other phenomena, including the Pharisees. Law and love are kind of tied into the name of God. Torah is considered in the Zohar, I think, to be one of the secret names of God. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. the book of Ruth is a profound meditation on the question of law. It also, these, these boundary spaces, um, I think just dramatically, this is where this important meeting happens. It's where the energy of the story gathers. Is you know she's coming back. She's entering this space set aside. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I think you know if we look look in on these laws very legalistically, it's like okay, I need to peel off a tenth. I need to you know these practices lose. There's some kind of obligation. Yeah. That are not tied to actual opportunity and possibility of encounter. I mean these are this is a rich rich space where actually what what glenn uh, lets us know early in the book is that the in the liturgical life of the mm-hmm. hebrew people it this story is paired with a couple other with with sinai yeah. the sinai scene and, and and it brings it's interesting that you that you mentioned kindness in your 
memories of Glenn, because one of, of your arguments with him, your and his arguments to, about Ruth is it lifts kindness up yeah, almost on equal footing with the, with the fireworks and the yeah. inapproachability of, of Sinai. Well, I mean, the book of Ruth has an understanding that you, unless you're interpreting Torah law through the lens of chesed, loving kindness, well, then you're not doing the work that you're called to do. Glenn highlights, Glenn was a great scholar of Hebrew, had fantastic understanding of biblical Hebrew in terms of parsing and interpretation, as well as then a deep interest in, in Judaism, especially when it comes to Jewish commentaries on this Jewish text. Um, and he highlights in the chapter that he writes about liturgy that in the Feast of Shavuot, um, the Pentecost um, feast in Judaism, the reading, the, the giving of the commandments of God to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai is the reading. And right alongside that is read the entirety of the Book of Ruth. And you, there, there are no two more stark contrasts in terms of what it means for a people to receive and to inhabit and interpret law. On the one hand, you've got this phenomenally dramatic experience, you know, thunder on the mountain and Moses comes down and he's glowing and he's got these things that God's written on. And then on the other hand, you've got this um, story of a foreigner who comes and challenges a people as to whether they will interpret their law in a way that benefits her in terms of a time of hunger. And what it's doing is holding together the sense that the the bigness of the law must be capable of being understood through the small story of somebody who would otherwise be dispossessed by the law. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, well, then you're not practicing chesed, loving kindness. And what we have here really is a story in the Bible of the Bible interpreting itself. And that is a phenomenal um, theological invitation, I think, to any peoples who are interested in the question of law and in, interested in the question of interpretation or hermeneutics to think, here we have a text that says, when faced, face to face, with somebody who is the living embodiment of what it means to fall between the cracks of the law, don't just think, oh, it's, you know, collateral damage, or we can't comment in individual cases. You need to totally pivot your understanding of the interpretive of the law through the story of this person. It is an entirely subjective invitation that we're given, which is to say, if your law exists in an objective way where it cannot engage critically with the subjective experience of being disinherited by it, well, then the objectivity of your law is an idol and you need to refocus the lenses of your understanding of the law or God or religion or theology through the interpretive experience of a person who is disin disinherited by it. That's an amazing, yeah. um, that's an amazing proposal from the Book of Ruth and from the Jewish liturgy, which holds the God speaking on the mountain with God as judge through Ruth asking a people to say, look at me and will you interpret something that works for me? Oh, it's quite fascinating. Which isn't about charity. Yeah, no, it's not. It's, 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 uh, it's about ultimately justice. it's about being transformed too. It's ultimately yeah. about, about a new way of being a people. And it's interesting to even think about, it's only now I'm thinking, you know, the terror on the mountain, Moses going up and we think, oh, yeah. no, no one survives this. You, you can't look at, you, and he's just glowing yeah. to remind us that he almost got zapped. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth, Ruth also is terrifying. Like the, her boundary is terrifying too. And these are, these are frightening, mm. dangerous places that, that it also equates in a sense, I think, maybe this 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 bravery and the boldness that it takes to have someone who would navigate these dangerous places but without them we're bereft of this um this contact with the divine and this tra this transformation that might take place in us yeah and an invitation into a form of citizenship that isn't just about majority rules but that is about an ethic of citizenship that is say who is disinherited by this law whose life is made to be citizenshipless, who is um, made to fend for themselves without any social provision. Yeah. Ruth in chapter two is really alone. She's fending for the family, herself and Naomi. And she really is alone. Naomi seems to 
be almost entirely absent from this chapter. And Ruth is out there hoping to be able to glean in the fields and hoping that she can find field owners who will honour the the legal status of her of her marriage and widowhood. So she finds one field where the owner says, leave her alone to his men, which basically means don't rape her. Because, of course, the corners of the field where that wouldn't have been harvested were also hidden corners, copses and undulations in the field where people who were there providing for their families would have been subject to rape and subject to all kinds of abuses out of the eye. Mm -hmm. And Boaz says to his men, leave her alone. And Boaz takes a keen interest in her. And that, I think, is a thing that alerts us to the Me Too narrative that you find throughout this text about ways within which women are due their civic and human rights and legal rights. All of them are the same thing, really. Um, just because they're due them, not because they're worthy of them, <laughs> you know, not because, oh, you're a good, you're a good immigrant or you're a good this or you pass the test. There shouldn't be a test. You know, you're you're here, you have legal access to this. There you are, it's yours in safety. And I think we see the precarious nature of trying to fend for yourself in a situation where your validity of having access to social care, social welfare is up for question in the imagination of some people. And this, I think, makes this book very relevant, not just to the question of Ireland and Britain and Brexit, but it makes it relevant to the question of um, just this latest year in the century of um, asylum seeking from people who are in their safety and in their desire for safety going somewhere where they often end up um, also not having legal provision. And they end up being far more courageous than the the settled population in that country who are are safe but but acting and performing fear performing fear performing fear i mean part of what you talk about as well in this in this uh, book is the way it lifts up the way that then we build up holiness codes and definitions of purity and who might be deserving by weeding out the good from the and it's stark as you as you describe this to me right now that in our country, we had false narratives thrown at us from the top about rapists. Yeah. When truthfully, who are the vulnerable pe people in these stories? Dear God. Uh, yeah. Um, but but purity uh, deserving. Yeah. So we. Yeah. It, it's all embedded in there. One. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you saw in Brexit in the kind of tabloid newspapers over in Britain over the last few years was this resurgence of this particular form of anti-Irishness. You know, the Irish are at it again as if you're an annoyance for sticking up for, you know, a, an internationally binding peace treaty, <laughs> you know, that a former empire is held to in as much as Ireland has committed to. And the the recognition that's so high in people's minds, even within the status of political um acceptance they're even higher than that i think you often find the question as to but do you deserve to be treated in a way of courtesy and we see that often in the story of um ruth and particularly in chapter three um naomi has entered back into the drama and naomi has said you know that guy who's nice to you in terms of the field who told his men to leave you alone and um, technically he's a relative of your dead husband <laughs> naomi's son and she said, he isn't the closest relative, so he isn't the first in line that could marry you. Very few people would have wanted to. But if we wait for the guy who is technically first in line, we'll be waiting a long time. So let's create a little bit of um, seduction. So Naomi tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor after the harvest where he'll have had a skinful of wine and to uncover his feet and then let things happen. And the word for feet in Hebrew has, is used explicitly elsewhere at times as a, as a euphemism for genitals, either for men or for women. And so there's a big question as to whether Naomi was, in a certain sense, uh, instructing or suggesting to Ruth to go and seduce uh, Boaz so that, and then create a situation if either where you have sex or you come to the brink of sex and you um, bring a commitment from him that he will kind of skip the queue to marry you because um, the fellow who was the closest probably wasn't going to do that. 
And um, there have been for centuries uh, midrashic texts going back and forth as to did they or didn't they have sex. And at the heart of all of that is this imagination of purity that if they had sex, would that have somehow done something to her legal status? In one of our sessions, there was I was leading the session. We were looking, we know these Ruth and Brexit sessions that Len and I were doing. I was leading the session and saying that this is a long-standing and valid argument. And there was a man there who's a, uh, the father of a friend of mine, and he said, "Young man, are you implying to me that Ruth and Boaz made love before they were married?" <laughs> I loved the young man. <laughs> it's nice to be reminded. And um, he was aghast at the suggestion that such a thing that he would have considered improper could have happened. And I mean, I would never say that this is exactly the way you should read it because, I mean, Hebrew text is brilliantly open for debate. That's the whole project of Midrashic and kind of rabbinical reflection on how do you interpret it here? How do you interpret it there? But what's certainly clear is that the scandal of the possibility has been around for a long time. And within the scandal of the possibility is somehow that had they had sex, that perhaps Ruth would have been tainted in such a way that her her worthiness to receive um, would have been up for question, her worthiness to receive what she had a right to, a legal right to. There was a stage at one point when a a bus full of, of children from Syria were going to be arriving in Britain and that was all delightful. You know, people were like, well, no, taking children in is lovely. Anyway, when the bus arrived, photographs were taken through the window. And, you know, some of them, plenty of them were 16, 17, you know, they're children. And there was these outrageous headlines to say, you know, they're practically men, which was to imply that these 16, 17 year olds were automatically being associated on in a projection of violence foisted upon them by a violent imagination. <laughs> This was a question, therefore, about the idea of innocence and the idea of culpability. And somehow because of their age, these children, these teenagers yeah. were were being viewed through that lens. How awful. Uh, who who took the photographs? Who who thought the headline there will get people angry, they'll buy our newspaper? Who who's behind that? That's an intelligent imagination to say this shit will work. And it does work. And I suppose I'm really critical of not not just the imagination that would lead you to go, I want my fear to be elevated and performed to the level where I'm going to be caught up into this fear of them. But I'm curious about who the manipulator is. What is the capitalist imagination behind that that says, let's get people frightened enough that they'll buy this shit in paper as well as in concept? Yeah, yeah. And they, a new boundary is created between childhood and adulthood, and it's moved. Oh, uh, gender as well, and religion, you know, the idea that a 16-year-old Muslim boy from Syria somehow yeah. was tantamount to people saying, well, therefore, we all know what that means, doesn't it? And regularly, I wanted people to finish it off. What does it mean? It means he's 16. It means he has left a home, uh, which is a traumatic thing, and he's arrived here and is being treated to violent violence over in England and is being treated to violence of interpretation. I'm critical of how that happened. Ireland is making every single mistake possible when it comes to the question of um, trying to implement an inclusion um, policy approach to the question of racial diversity. Ireland is late to an increasing um, racially diverse population in comparison to other places in Europe. And Ireland is making every single mistake from the word go. So I in no way feel like Ireland has anything to in any way feel superior about. That's important to say. Yeah. And and in the story, and in, this isn't the only story in the Hebrew scriptures of a woman using the power she has, if she's using it in that way. I mean, Tamar and there are wonderful yeah. other stories that astonishingly, again, are included in the canon, that in the in the collection of scriptures, which yeah. which which is a model for conflict. Like our scriptures as, as Jews and Christians preserve conflict in voices. And yeah. they say, you have to attend to both of these. Completely. I mean, I, I, I see the Hebrew canon as well as the Christian canon as, a, as a, a library of argument. 
I think were you to put all the authors of these texts in the same room, they'd probably hate each other. There'd be huge fights. You know, the, the name you give to God is not the right name. The way you interpret this is not the right way. The understanding you have about what it means to be in the community is not here. You are being too narrow in your interpretation of what it means to be part of the household of God. And that's one of the things I love about the vivacity and brilliance of Scripture, particularly um, Jewish scripture is that the characters are flawed, the characters are caught in crises and trying to interpret law in the midst of crises and the argument about whether their interpretation was valid or not or whether it was welcoming or not has gone on for centuries. And I think that is a phenomenally um, muscular and beautiful way to take law rather than the idea oh there it is in black and white you know interpret it or leave you know that you hear that sometimes within some christianities and i think that fails to pay attention to the very tradition that is at the heart of these texts you literally have a story laid aside law chiseled into stone that's human a woman that's yeah powerful to remember we have the resources to to have it to form a different kind of language to totally address conflict in different ways as you've said in another uh, lovely piece about conflict their conflict is an opening in which truths actually come to us there's, there's great possibility that we could be living into if we knew how to navigate conflict as scripture does honestly um, yeah and to escalate it but to escalate good conflict i mean the whole yeah. point of conflict is not that there shouldn't be any but that it should be fruitful um yeah. One of the things that's boring to me about 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 violent conflict is how predictable it is, and I mean that both in the sense of war and in the sense of a parish council. You know, very quickly somebody's going to just do the thing which is about pulling the plug, which is about pulling rank, which is about you know shutting something down and bringing it to a narrative of dominance, where dominance will be the thing that will decide the day, and that is profoundly boring. And one of the things I think that an ethical approach to civic conflict asks for is what are the creative new ways that we're being called into? And that's always going to feel fresh and always going to feel vulnerable and always going to make you go, this is new. We hadn't thought about this before. Magnificent. You're at the point there of transformation because when you're thinking of something new, what you're doing is creating. And in the place of conflict, the conflict is allowing you to be in a creative act as a magnificent opportunity rather than a threat. And I think one of the things that Ireland has been an irritant in the Brexit problem is, is to say, here is the brilliance of the commitment of the British government in terms of how Britain brought itself to the Good Friday Agreement, which was Britain, Ireland, the European Union and the United States, Senator George Mitchell and Bill, Bill Clinton, were both hugely involved in creating the supportive framework. One of the things that Ireland has been doing is to say, this is actually brilliant. This is something to be proud of, not irritated by. Mm -hmm. And you you shouldn't have considered the question of Brexit without a deep consideration of the commitments that are enshrined in law, internationally binding treaty from the Good Friday Agreement. Um, because those things are not the, the demeaning of, um, of British sovereignty. They are, in fact... Um, the demonstration of an extraordinary creativity that those governments had. And we should delight to hold ourselves to it and improve on it rather than feel like it's holding back some project of sovereignty, which is just a fantasy about a past that never existed anyway. Fantastic. Well, the story ends beautifully and succinctly with a short, uh, <laughs> short genealogy saying, lest you... Uh, pretend that this this Moabite from Moab was a fringe character. She's in the lineage of David. She's in the center of the yeah. story, um, of all stories. Um, well, I think we're going to have to, I could go on for a few more hours with you, friend. <laughs> but I'd love, uh, maybe maybe you've got another poem to, to finish out with, maybe in conversation. I do. I have a point here. One of the questions that isn't known really is who wrote the Book of Ruth? And uh, the book emerged really during a time when um, when the 
the exiles had come back from Babylon. The Jewish exiles had come back from Babylon. And there was arguments really about saying, look, we've just survived this latest infarction from a foreign power. Who can we be back in Jerusalem and how can we be? And there was arguments, you know, um, second Isaiah saying, let, every, let the doors be open. Everybody who comes can come. Anyway, Nehemiah was like the senior civil servant and he was basically saying, if you came back from our 70 years in exile, so nobody who had gone there had come back, it was their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. He said, if you've come back with a foreign spouse or half foreign children, get, get rid of them. And the, th the thinking is, is that um, somebody thought, I'm going to write a story called Ruth and um, about a Moabite from Moab. And that this is a theology of fiction to say, here is the power of a narrative to confront us in the complex political times that we can be in. Maybe there is a historical feature to this. I mean, that, I, that's great too. But I love the idea that some woman decided, I am going to write a story where we are going to be brought face to face with something that is imaginative. So one of my imaginations is that maybe Orpa, the other sister, um, the other Moabite woman from the start of the, the text that she wrote it. Oh. So here's a poem called Orpa, right? Beloved Sister Ruth. I'm actually downloading it here because my computer uploads everything to a cloud and then I need to download everything. Here it is. Harper writes to her beloved sister, Ruth. I hear they've named books after you. Now women named Naomi will dream of naming daughters like Ruth. And painters will capture our departure. And lovers will sing those words of yours to each other. Where you go. I did not go. I wonder if I'd followed, whether I'd have found a home. You were always keen to go. What songs for those of us who stayed? I picked up the old economy. I made a life of it, the way everybody at the hem of hunger does it. In time there was food, and a man, and some children, and glory for my widowed head. In time, there was a God who gathered scattered stories. I made you up. I sit here writing stories of you whose life I cannot see. So I write, where you go, I will go. Your people, my people. All those other gods, my gods too. May fire fall on me if I forsake all that your memory gave me. Storyteller has power as well. Thank you, Padraig. What a gift to be with Thanks, you. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure. This episode of the Calvary Podcast is part of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a nearly century-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent and onto our podcast beyond. The Calvary Podcast Lenten Preaching Edition is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preacher, Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening.